Well, you guys can turn to the book of 2 Timothy as you're taking your seats. Obviously, the the founder of our faith that we're looking at today is Timothy. So we're going to look at him and at what Paul says to him in 2 Timothy chapter 1. So Timothy was not an apostle. He was not a disciple, but he was a significant leader in the early history of the church. Timothy ended up having a very big impact as part of Paul's ministry. He was one of Paul's disciples. And then as a pastor in the church of of Ephesus, he had a big impact on the early history of the church. But to have that significant impact, Timothy had to push through what seems to have been a lifelong struggle with fear or anxiety. We're not sure of all the details. We just know that for Timothy, anxiety was a big issue. He had to work through that to have the impact that God wanted him to have. So to any of you who ever struggle with fear or anxiety, Timothy is a brother to you. He lived through that. He knows what that feels like. And the encouragement that Paul gives to Timothy in the midst of his battle with anxiety can help us too. So let's jump into this advice that Paul gives to Timothy. We're looking at 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. One of my kids' favorite activities during the winter, which is hard to imagine because it's the height of summer right now, is to build a fire in in their grandparents' backyard. So their grandparents have a fire pit and then they have like forested land behind that. And so my kids love to to build and, and burn a fire. The problem is like for the last two years, it's been raining every day in College Station. And so it's really hard to find any dry wood these days. And so back this last winter, when my kids wanted to build a fire, it was actually a lot of work. Like you had to run kind of through the forested area and try to find any little dry leaves or twigs that they could. And they'd bring them up and we'd get, grab some newspaper and we'd light it. And the problem is because it was so wet, you had to constantly tend it and blow on it and build it from a really small size. It took a long time to build up that fire. The ironic thing is that even in the height of winter, by the time the fire was really roaring, we were all covered in sweat. That's just part of building a fire in Texas any time of the year. It took a lot of work to build that fire, but it was worth it because then you could have s'mores. And ultimately, that's what a fire is all about, is dessert. And, and when you think about building that fire, it's actually a lot like life for the Christian. We're called to be a fire for the Lord. Jesus said to us in Matthew chapter 5, let's see if we can get there. There we go. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. God 
called us and saved us so that we could be lights to the world. So that we could be a flame of light and heat to a dark and dying world. That's God's call and purpose for your life. The problem is the world keeps trying to put our fire out. That's kind of what the world does. It's trying to extinguish that that light of witness that God is growing within us. Because for people who like living in the dark, a fire can be uncomfortable. A light is convicting. They, they don't want to be convicted by the truth of God. They, they don't want to feel guilty about the lives that they're living. And so they want to conform us to their likeness. They want us to be just like them so that we'll no longer be a witness to them. We'll no longer be convicting to them. So God has called you to be a light to the world, but the world keeps trying to extinguish that light in you. So... What do we do with that reality, with that, with that fight going on between us and the world? Well, that's what Paul is talking about in verse 6. It's the big idea of this whole passage. The major verb of the passage where Paul's telling Timothy what to do. He says, fan into flame the gift of God. Grow this fire within you, Timothy. Let this, this light grow within you. It's actually a very rare word in Greek. This is the only time fan into flame appears in the entire New Testament. So we don't have a lot of data on this word. We can see kind of what it must mean based on the Greek translation of a passage in the Hebrew Old Testament. So Genesis 45. When they told him, that, that is Jacob, when they, when they tell him uh, all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. There's that word, revived, or fan into flame. So Jacob thought that Joseph was dead. He thought Joseph had died like years and years ago. And since learning that, that Joseph had died, Jacob had, had just fallen into depression. Life was, was lost to him. He was hopeless year after year until suddenly he hears this amazing news. No, Joseph isn't dead. He's actually alive and his spirit revived. So hopelessness has been replaced by hope. That's what this word means. Here's another example of this word for you. It comes from a Jewish book outside the Bible, the book of Maccabees. Um, the whole nation of Israel was under attack by foreign powers. The Israelites were terrified until their leader, a guy named Simon, stood up and he, he gave them like a Braveheart kind of speech to inspire the soldiers. He told them, I will avenge my nation in the sanctuary and your wives and children for all the nations have gathered together out of hatred to destroy us. And he inspires them and the result is this, the spirit of the people was rekindled. Their spirit was fanned into flame when they heard these words and they answered in a loud voice, you are our leader, all that you say to us we will do. So for them, they were overwhelmed by fear. That was their issue, anxiety. They are afraid as they go into battle. He, he gives this amazing speech to them and that fear is replaced by courage. So now we have a sense of what this verb means, to fan into flame. It means to inspire courage and hope in the heart of someone who's overwhelmed by fear or despair. Now for Timothy, the particular issue was fear. And you can tell that from verse 7. Look again at verse 7 right at the beginning there. For God gave us a spirit not of fear. Well, there's lots of things the spirit isn't of. Why does Paul mention this one? Because this was Timothy's issue, fear. 
He struggled with fear as best we can tell. He struggled with anxiety his whole life. We can see a a little glimpse of that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, he's writing to the church in Corinth. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. For he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. So so Paul has to challenge him. Don't, Don't make Timothy afraid because he struggles with that. He struggles with anxiety. If this was a Sunday school class we were having this morning, we would name him Timid Timothy. Because that's his deal in life. But the deal is by the time that Paul's writing the book of 2 Timothy, this timid young man who struggles with anxiety has been elevated to be pastor of one of the most important churches in the whole world at that time. Ephesus was like the New York of its day. It was a major city. It was wealthy. It was culturally and politically significant. And here is Timothy as the head pastor of the, of the whole church in that town. And, and so Paul knew that Timothy would struggle in that. I think that Timothy was probably feeling overwhelmed. I sure would. If I was put as pastor over a whole city, one of the biggest cities of the whole day, I would struggle with fear and anxiety. That's how Timothy felt. He felt in over his head. He felt like he wasn't qualified for this job. He wrestled with anxiety. I think for most of us, we can identify with how Timothy felt. Probably every one of us in this room has at some point felt overwhelmed by fear or anxiety. Something has overwhelmed you. I've been honest with my own struggles in the past with doubt and depression. That's still stuff that I struggle with. That's a common struggle that so many of us are in. If you're a parent of young kids, I know you've been overwhelmed by anxiety. About 6 p.m. every day. We call it the witching hour in our house because the parents are getting more tired and the kids are getting more crazy. And you know things are going to go bad. All of us struggle with fear. All of us also, from time to time, struggle with discouragement. Life doesn't work out for us the way that we expected it to. So you've worked incredibly hard at your job, and then you still get laid off or passed over for a promotion. Or you share your faith for the hundredth time with a relative who you just desperately want to come to know Jesus, and they blow you off. For whatever reason, all of us are going to struggle with fear and discouragement from time to time. That's just part of life. And so we need this advice that Paul is giving to Timothy because we've been in his shoes. When you feel overwhelmed by anxiety or fear or discouragement, you are to fan into flame this gift of God. Okay, so that's the big idea of the passage. When you feel fear, when you feel depression. Fan into flame the gift of God. But what is this gift of God that, that Paul is talking about? Look again at verses 6 and 7. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Verse 7 answers the question of verse 6. So what is the gift of God? It's verse 7. It's the spirit. The Holy Spirit who lives in you, if you are a believer. Paul talks about this gift of of the Holy Spirit who lives in all believers in Titus chapter 3. He says that God saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So most of you already know this reality. When we talk about salvation, we're talking about so much more than just going to heaven when you die. 
When you are saved, you are transformed. Because the moment that you trust in Jesus, God the Spirit comes to live inside of you. Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, comes to live in you forever. The moment that you trust in Jesus. So the moment that you say to God, I am a sinner. I can't earn my way to heaven, but I believe that your son Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life as a free gift. The moment that you believe that good news, you are justified, you are washed, you are renewed, and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you forever. So now God is literally living inside of you. And the moment that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, he begins to share with you all of his gifts. And there are many that are, that are spelled out throughout the New Testament. Paul mentions three particular gifts in our passage this morning, right there in verse 7, at the very end of the passage, the gift of God's power and love and self-control. The Holy Spirit comes to live in your life, and he shares with you transcendent power, transcendent love, transcendent self-control. It is all yours. Now, th- there is a question when we read this, because we look at verse 6 and we wonder, well, what is Paul talking about when he says, laying on of my hands? Because for most of us, we probably didn't have somebody lay their hands on us when we got the Holy Spirit. What's going on there? Well, remember, Timothy is a pastor. Timothy received the Holy Spirit and all the Spirit's gifts the instant he trusted in Jesus. But later in his life, he was commissioned to be pastor of the church of Ephesus. And that's where the Spirit's gifts were being used through Timothy at this point in time. As a pastor in Ephesus. And pastors are commissioned by the laying on of hands of the elders. So Paul saying, Timothy, you're, you're using this gift because of that moment when I and other elders laid hands on you. To call you to be pastor. Now not all believers are called to be pastors. So not all believers will have hands laid on them. But all believers have the Holy Spirit. And the gifts of the Spirit. In the same way and to the same amount. That Timothy did. Okay so we have this gift of God. In us the Holy Spirit. He can give us all this transcendent power. And love and self control. That will give us the courage and hope. To live the life God has called us to. But to, to have that power, love, and self-control, again, back to verse 6, we have to fan into flame the gift of the Spirit. So how do we do that? Well, now is when we're going to get really practical. I, I want to lay out for you four very practical steps you can start doing today to fan into flame the gift of the Spirit in you so that you can replace fear and discouragement with hope and courage. Now, I I do want to be really clear. We're, We're talking here in this passage about normal levels of fear and discouragement. For those of you who are dealing with extreme or prolonged bouts of of fear or depression, that could be a medical issue. You you may be dealing with an anxiety disorder or clinical depression, and you are going to need to go beyond the four steps I'm going to give you this morning. So you need to do these four, but you also need to talk to a counselor. You, You may need medication. If you want to learn more about anxiety disorders or clinical depression, I I taught on that a year ago, walked you through the steps. You can go back and listen to that. That goes beyond the scope of this passage. This passage is dealing with kind of the -the run-of-the-mill, everyday anxiety and discouragement that we all face. So when you feel overwhelmed by, by fear or by discouragement, 
Here are the four things you should do to fan into flame the the power, love, and self-control of the Spirit in your life. So number one thing that you do to fan into flame the gifts of the Spirit in your life, you give thanks. You give thanks to God for all that he has done. There is no discipline in life that is more powerful for generating power, love, and discipline than the practice of gratitude. That, that will change your attitude more than anything else. If you practice this discipline of gratitude, that comes up that you may think, gosh, Blake, that's like an application in easily 50% of your sermons. Yes, because I don't know anything better than that. That's really the most powerful habit you can put in place in your life is the habit of giving God thanks. To help Timothy to practice this discipline of gratitude, Paul takes like the first half of the passage to remind Timothy of things he can be thankful for. So verse 1, he reminds Timothy of this promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. He's reminding Timothy, you've received eternal life from God. That's the greatest gift ever. You will be with God in heaven. Your sins have been forgiven. You have hope. He's reminding Timothy about the good news of the gospel. Then further on, verse 2, Timothy, my beloved child. Paul's reminding Timothy that that to Paul, Timothy is a beloved son. Not not a biological son, but, but a son in the faith, a spiritual son. He was a disciple of Paul. Paul's reminding Timothy of of how much he loves Timothy. So Timothy can be grateful that he's had Paul investing in his life. Then further down, verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. He's reminding Timothy, Timothy, you should be giving thanks every day for the amazing family you have. Your grandmother and your mom who raised you in the faith. So Paul takes the first chunk of the letter and reminds Timothy of things he can be grateful for because Paul wants Timothy to build this habit of gratitude in his life. Because that's the first step to fanning into flame the gift of the Spirit. Now, I don't know the particulars of your life. I don't know if you've had a Paul in your life. I don't know if you had believing parents or grandparents. But I do know that if you have trusted in Jesus, then you have eternal life. And that's the greatest gift ever. So you have something to be thankful for. You have something to begin to practice this discipline of gratitude in your life. So if you want to replace anxiety and discouragement with courage and hope, then the first thing you need to do is begin daily to practice this discipline of giving thanks. Just wherever you happen to be, if you're driving your car, you're waking up in the morning, you're taking the dog for a walk, you're driving, you're heading to class, wherever you are, find moments when you can say thank you to God for the things he has done. And it can be really high and mighty things like the gift of eternal life, and it can be seemingly really small things like a good tasting hamburger. It's all the same. You're giving thanks for all the things God has done for you in life. That will fan into flame the power of the Spirit in you. I know of no greater application than that. If you will practice the discipline of giving thanks to God, it will fan in the flame the Spirit's power, love, and self-control in your life. Okay, so really easy one to begin to practice today. Second practical step to fan into flame, the gift of the Spirit. You have to avoid sin. 
This is another point that I have made many times over the years in my sermon because I, I find that so many people in Christianity are confused about this. Obedience is not what gets us to heaven. That is by faith alone. But if you want to experience God's blessings in this life, including his power, love, and self-control, you must obey. That's where obedience fits into your life. Not to get you to heaven, not to prove you're going there, but so that you can experience God's blessings, his power, his love, his discipline in this life. You must obey. You, you have to avoid sin. John talks about this. John the Apostle in 1 John chapter 1, very famous passage. You've probably seen it before. He says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Light is righteousness in this passage. Darkness is sin in this passage. If we say that we have fellowship with him, that we're walking with God, that we're enjoying his power, love, and discipline in our lives, and yet we walk in darkness, we practice sin, then we are lying and not practicing the truth. John's point is that if you want to experience the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, giving you strength and power and courage and love and hope, the only way is to walk in the light. If you walk in the darkness, you're not going to hell. That's not what this passage is about. If you walk in the darkness, you're cutting yourself off from the blessings of God's power, love, and self-control in your life right now. You must choose to walk in obedience if you want to experience God's work in you. Now, here's the hard part. Here's the hard part. When you are struggling and overwhelmed with anxiety or with hopelessness, guess what Satan is going to do? He's going to lie to you. He always does that, but he's going to really come after you. When anxiety or hopelessness sets in, he's going to lie to you. And what he's going to say is that, well, life already stinks. So why not give into that sin that will at least make you feel better for a little while? I mean, really, don't you deserve it? Look at how, look at how bad life is going. You deserve a little break. Maybe that sin will make your anxiety a little bit less. He's going to come and lie to you to try to make sin seem reasonable in the midst of your battle with anxiety or hopelessness. Please don't give in. Please don't give in. That's horrible advice Satan is giving you. It's horrible advice he's giving you because sin will never make things better. Might make you feel good for a little bit, but it will never make things better in the end. When you're struggling with anxiety or hopelessness and you give in to sin because you think it's going to make things better, it's like an alcoholic grabbing a beer to make his hangover go away. It doesn't work doesn't work. It may take away the pain for a moment, but it's just going to make things worse in the end. So it is giving it a sin. It will just make everything worse in the end. You need to believe truth. The only way to have God's power and love and self-control in your life is to practice obedience. You got to avoid sin and you got to walk in obedience if you want to enjoy God's work in your lives. Now, that doesn't mean perfection. None of us are perfect. But it means that you are genuinely seeking to obey God and turn away from sin. If you will do that, then you will be fanning into flame the Spirit's power, love, and self control in your life. Okay? So please resist that lie from Satan. Don't give in to sin. Third step to fanning into flame the gift of the Spirit in you get to work. I was thinking about the, the Good Samaritan story some this week. 
It's an interesting story. I, I'm sure most of you are very familiar with it. So Good Samaritan story, you got a Jewish man. He's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he is mugged, and he is left for dead. And a priest sees him and passes on by. And a Levite sees him and passes on by. And then a Samaritan, who Jews hated, he sees the guy and he has compassion. He has mercy upon him and he bandages the guy's wounds and he gives him water and food and he takes care of him and takes him to an inn and at great expense helps the guy recuperate. And it's a beautiful story, but what strikes me is you realize no one did anything about the robbers. And the whole story, no one does anything about the bad guys. No one pursues them. No one arrests them. No one prosecutes them. No one does anything. Based on what we know of the ancient world, they did the same thing the next day. Because that happened everywhere in the ancient world. And so what strikes me in in looking at the story of the Good Samaritan is that Jesus, who's telling the story, and the Good Samaritan, who is the hero of the story, they don't worry about the fact that no one can do anything about the robbers. He just takes care of the guy in front of him. He can help someone in need, and so he does. That's inspiring to me. Because I look out at this world that we live in, and I see huge problems, like robbers on the road to Jericho, problems that are way too big for me. Problems like poverty and and racism and, and violence and war and unbelief and all of these huge problems. And I can't fix these problems occasionally God has raised up a a particular believer to tackle one of those massive worldwide problems. You got like William Wilberforce, a believer in England, bringing the slave trade to an end in England. You got MLK Jr. arguing against segregation in America. You got Billy Graham saving probably hundreds of thousands of people through his crusades. Occasionally you have a believer who God will use to tackle one of those massive problems, but that's not usually the way God works. Most of us as individuals can't do anything about those massive worldwide problems. And so our temptation is to say to ourselves, well, if I can't fix poverty, racism, unbelief, why bother doing anything? Why even try? I can't fix it. And so we use that as an excuse to do nothing. And the flame of the spirit grows cold and small in our lives. Instead, we need to learn from the example of the Good Samaritan. We can't do everything, but we can do something. We can do something for someone in need, and ultimately, that's what God is calling us to do. Unless you are the next William Wilberforce, God is not calling you to fix a problem that's global. He's calling you to help someone in need in front of you. If you will do that, God will fan into flame the gift of the Spirit in you. There's few things in our lives that throw wood on the power of the Spirit in your life like helping someone in need. Just find someone you can help. You don't have to fix poverty, but you can help one poor person, right? You can't fix unbelief, but you can share the gospel with one person who doesn't know Jesus. Now, if you're looking around and saying, well, I don't know how to get started. I don't know who I can help. We would love to help you. we got lots of people you can help. So come talk to someone on staff. We will help get you connected to a service opportunity in this community where you can help real people with real needs. And you will find that as you help real people with real needs, it will fan into flame the power and love and self-control of the Spirit in your life. Okay, so get to work. 
Get busy helping people in need. We will help you to get to work. Fourth and final step. To fan into flame the gift of the Spirit in you. Join with others. We're told in Hebrews chapter 10. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another. The author of Hebrews is challenging us. There will be times in life when you want to forsake assembling together with other believers. You want to be alone. And I don't mean like just alone from time to time, but you you don't want to be part of a community. You, You want to be alone and isolated. You're going to feel that temptation when you battle with these rough times of anxiety or discouragement or despair. It's really common that when we struggle with with anxiety or despair, we are not going to want to talk to other people about it. So we're going to feel like we're messed up and feel embarrassed. We want to hide it. We look around at all these nice looking people at church. Seems like they got their lives together. Seems like they don't have any messes going on in their lives. We don't want to feel like we're the one shameful person. And so we don't talk about it. We, we isolate ourselves. You see this all the time. When some, the more someone is struggling with anxiety or hopelessness, whatever it might be, the more they want to isolate themselves. Well, that's exactly what Satan wants for you. Because do you know how to put out a bonfire? Just pull apart the logs. It'll go out. Just roll apart the logs and the fire will die out. It works exactly the same way in the lives of believers. All Satan has to do to make you ineffective is pull you apart. Isolate you. And then isolated, the flame of the Spirit's power, love, and discipline in your life will diminish. Instead, you have to fight that. The more you feel like isolating yourself, the more you have to push into community. You need to use, okay, I feel like I really want to isolate myself. That is, that is a warning light. It means I need to go above and beyond to connect with other believers because this is a very vulnerable, very dangerous time for me. You need to push into community when you battle with hopelessness and anxiety because you need encouragement from others. And guess what? They actually need encouragement from you because if counseling lots of you over the years has proven one thing to me, it's that no one has their stuff together. We are all a mess Some of us are just better at hiding it than others. We all need one another. You need encouragement from us. We need encouragement from you. That is how the body of Christ is designed to operate as we draw close together even as Satan is trying to pull us apart. So push into community. Now as the men go back to prepare communion, let me talk you through how to get involved in community if you're not already. So some of you already have strong communities of other believers. I just encourage you to stay plugged in with that community. Some of you don't though. Some of you feel isolated, you feel alone, you don't have other believers in your life helping you and encouraging you to walk with Jesus, and so let me talk to you. If you're not in a a community of other believers, like a small group, what do you do about that? Well, the, the first thing is, you can just come talk to any one of us. So anyone with a name badge on or anybody, any staff, any deacons here at the church, come talk to us and we'll help you to find a place where you can plug in and find that community. If you'd rather kind of do the research on your own, just go to our website. 
And, and right up at the top, there's a button that says connect. Click that. And you'll see we have lots of options. We have home churches that obviously meet in people's homes. We have Sunday school groups. We have men and women's Bible study, college Bible studies, youth Bible studies, recovery groups, addiction recovery groups, grief counseling groups, single adult groups. We have all kinds of different groups out there. You can find a place to plug in. Now, July is kind of a low time. Community-wise, because everybody's traveling, everybody's around. So what do you do to find community this month? There are a couple options just for July. So let me point these out to you in case you haven't heard about them. The first is for all the women in the room. We have Women's Book Club here at um, Grace. It actually doesn't meet at Grace Bible Church. Uh, It's going to be meeting on Monday nights at 7 p.m., reading the book Unoffendable by Brent Hansen. Uh, It actually starts tomorrow. So you can apply this immediately. If you're a woman here at Grace and you feel like, I, I don't really have other women I'm connecting with, go tomorrow night at 7 p.m. The address is on, the, on our website. So go to our website because it's going to be at four different houses the four Mondays of July. Okay, so it's just four times, just four Mondays. You'll have a great time if you go to that. So that's one option for the women in the room. If you're a college student, we have Ruth Bible Studies kicking off this week. So they're going to meet for four weeks. Again, this is just July, kind of typically a low time in terms of of community. Um, It's going to meet on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. at the Anderson campus. So if you're a college student, Go to the Anderson campus Wednesday night starting at 7 p.m. Starting this Wednesday and you guys are going to study the book of Ruth together. So we have lots of different options for you and then go online, talk to one of us. You need to be in a community of other believers. You cannot do life successfully on your own. Okay? The first step on our list of inspiring the Spirit's power, love, and discipline in us is to give thanks, and that's what we're going to do this morning. So we get to take communion. If you've ever wondered what is communion, what's the whole little cracker thing about, and the grape juice about, ultimately it's an expression of giving thanks. It's physical, you're using your body, but you are giving thanks to God. Communion is what we call a memorial. A memorial. Think about what is a memorial. A memorial is when you are reminded of what someone did that was good in the past. This is the greatest memorial of all. We are remembering what God's son Jesus did for us in the past. When he died on the cross and rose from the dead so that he could save us. So as we take communion this morning, my encouragement for you is to practice that step number one for fanning into flame the gift of the Spirit in you, I want you to take the next couple minutes and I want you to do nothing but give thanks. So the challenge here is that often we start to pray, we very quickly wander to asking for things, which is good, you can do that, but not this time. This time, for the next couple minutes, I want you to find things to give thanks for. Okay, so you're going to be thanking God, first and foremost, for his son Jesus, for giving you the gift of eternal life, but then just keep going, listing the things in your mind that you can give thanks to God for, because that's what communion is about. It's our chance as a family to give thanks for Jesus. So men, if you'll come forward, let's spend some time giving thanks. Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks... He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, this morning, 
we want to give thanks to you. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful that you chose to become one of us. You chose to leave the perfection and bliss of heaven to walk among us, to to live life with us on this planet. And you chose to become not a a great king or wealthy potentate. You, You were just a carpenter's son. You chose a life of humility. You chose a life of work and of service so that you could be just like all of us. And and through all of that, Lord Jesus, you never gave in to selfishness, to sin, to pride. Instead, you walked in righteousness and in love. And then as, as your job came to a completion and your ministry began, you did amazing things for three years and, and you served and you healed and then you taught and you restored and then... When your ministry came to an end, you chose to die in our place, to take the punishment that we deserve, to die so that our sins could be forgiven and completely washed away. And then you rose from the dead so that you could earn a victory that you would share with us. You don't keep it for yourself. You share it freely with all of us so that we can have life eternal with you. Lord Jesus, you did all of this amazing thing for us and and it would be reasonable for you to offer it to us at great cost to us, to, to demand everything that we could ever have, everything that we could ever give. And yet instead, you offer it to us completely for free. You, you open your arms wide and you accept us just as we are. And, and you welcome us into your reward and into your victory. We praise you and we thank you, Jesus, for your incredible mercy. We pray for anyone here this morning who hasn't yet received that mercy because they don't yet understand it or or don't yet believe it. I pray that they would see and understand, Jesus, that you are holding your arms wide to them right now, that you want them to be saved, that you want to give them the gift of eternal life. We thank you, Jesus, that you are so good to us. Help us the remainder of this week to continually give thanks to you We do pray that when fear or hopelessness sink in, that we would respond in gratitude to you, that we would remember all that you are and all that you've done, and that that would give us power, love, and self-control. Thank you for the gift of your spirit who lives inside of us. Thank you, spirit, that you love us and that you are working in us. Help us to walk with you this week. Thank you for all you've done. You're so good, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.